my enthusiast, Gus Rowland here. Today I'll be joined by the entire gang because you're about to listen to the end of year special of A Horse Walks Into A Bar. Welcome along, gang. Happy Boxing Day if you're listening on release day, and we hope you enjoy a brief look back at some of the team's personal highs and lows of 2022, plus a few other Easter eggs that may be of interest. If you want to share a high or a low with us, at us at a Horse Walks Pod on the tweet or the gram, or incorporate it into your review on your podcast provider of choice. Let's get straight into it with our highs. We've had some stellar performers throughout the year, so much so that Suman Hedge couldn't stop at a single high. There's actually been a few for me. One of them is definitely Animo. I just, I think as a fan of the sport, as a person involved in different facets of the industry, as an owner, as, a, as an agent buying yearlings, he really represents everything that we look for in a racehorse. He's, he's performed at the highest level as a two-year-old, winning at group one level, then trained on as a three-year-old, done the same. Was very unlucky in last year's Cox Plate, uh, and then he managed to win the Cox Plate this year, So and really it was like a crowning moment for the horse. I think that um, he, with his pedigree, his good looks, and it's also a real testament to Godolphin for racing on the horse and not just packing him off to start early. Yeah, I think that we're all we're all the beneficiaries of that. But just seeing that horse through the year, the way that he's um, he's dominated and and also ridden by the best jockey that we have, and that probably ties into the other high, which is Nature Strip winning at Royal Ascot. I think. Uh, mm. That's just an amazing achievement for this horse. He's been racing at a high level for many years. To go up against um, the the English and to beat them, uh, you know, I feel I feel was just a great achievement. And again, to have the you know probably the best trainer and best jockey involved, um, it's everything that's you know the the elite of our sport going there and representing us and doing well and winning. Uh, I think that makes us all very proud. So that was a that was a huge high. I I know one of the part owners as well, so we've sort of lived the journey um, through. So it's been really good to see that horse continue on. So yeah, I'd I'd say probably Animo and and Nature Strip would be my highs of the year. Nature Strip, the, one, the thing I love about Nature Strip is potentially lost a little bit is the vindication uh, of Chris Waller for years. He was hammered for not taking Winks overseas. And then also for not taking Very Elegant overseas. And this was sort of indication for me that Chris isn't afraid to take horses overseas. He just wants them to have every chance and have the right horse in the right situation. And I feel like Nature Strip proved that he, what he can do when he's allowed to be Chris Waller. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And having gotten to know Chris over the years, one of his greatest strengths is his ability to manage. He's got a huge operation and the way the systems that he puts in place to manage that are second to none. 
and it it extends obviously to the way that he trains his horses he he places horses so well i remember when we had um zoostar with him when the horse ran second in a group one at a mile as a two-year-old all of the owners thought that the horse should be set for the caulfield guineas and chris was just adamant that the horse had to run in the coolmore and the golden rose and he just wouldn't deviate from that he said no these are the two races this horse is a sprinter we said we're we're, we're going to train him for those and you know we had a lot of discussions almost questioning that as Ernest can do and you know he was completely vindicated the horse was an absolute sprinter and he, and he, and he prevailed and with nature strip he's just um, trained that horse so well and and even very elegant I agree with you I think that the fact that you know he he could see the horse's potential here and and there's obviously huge prize money to be won here, and he was absolutely maxed the prize money uh, that he was able to deliver to the connections of, of that horse. And they won Group 1s and had a wonderful time. Uh, and now the Nature Strip, they've won everything that they need to win here in Australia, and he's taken him abroad and, and given them that experience as well. So you can't ask for anything more than that. Fanula Timoney's high was a personal one and a testament to her willingness to take a risk. Without a doubt, it was um, tin hooking and the mare, tis my view. Bought her with a friend for 15,000 um, ahead of the previous breeding season. I put her in full to Hanseatic horse uh, that I'd had to get finance to afford to buy a breeding right in, but um, I, I was really strong in him and, and really wanted a breeding right in him. And anyway, got her in foal on a September 1st cover and sold her the following um, year, which was this year at, at the English Broodmare sale for 350000 How does that change someone like yourself? I mean, obviously, you're someone who's passionate about this. You're well-respected in the industry and, and you've had success. You've acquired horses that have done things, you've, you know, that, that sort of thing. But having a result... Obviously, financially incredibly beneficial, but also vindication-wise. What does that mean to you? Oh, yeah. Look, I think because often, like, you know yourself, um, if, you know, you, I suppose any people will argue that anyone can you, you get lucky at least once. And, you know, even the time I bought Forget the Weather, you know, for 20,000 in full to shoot and win. Mm. And, you know, the following year she threw out up um, Bella Vela when the group won Sangster Stakes. And you know, it's easy for people to kind of knock you a bit and be like, oh, what you bloody pure luck or whatever. And so I think just to be able to, for my own vindication, yeah, because, you know, people might actually start sitting sitting up and think, oh, actually, maybe that Fanula knows a little about what she's doing. And it's not all just luck. Um, so I think from that point of view, it, it was nice. Um, you know, yeah. because so like it's, this is all I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, so to actually... Get results like that and actually you know for once make a few quid out of it it's very rewarding the the hanseatic point you made is is an interesting one that i don't think people who see just the raw sales figures and and stud fees and that sort of thing consider is just how many people breeding at your level for nola have to go financially so close to the wind on a gamble. Yeah, like even like the time with I bought Forget the Weather for twenty thousand. Um, I didn't have twenty thousand in my bank account. I think I'd gotten um, I'd gotten finance approval for thirty thousand um, that particular year. Um, 
and was actually willing to go to Turkey on Forget the Weather because I really liked her. But um, And I thought she had upside with her few fillies. She hadn't worked at the time. But, like, yeah, like you don't, people, yeah, as you say, don't realize, you know, the, <laughs> the risks often people like me take. Like, as I say, I didn't even know if it was possible, you know, if, if sales companies were willing to finance, um, you know, a, a stallion breeding right like that. But, you know, I just thought, well, the worst they can say is no. And I must say, actually, Barry Bowditch at Magic Millions was very supportive and facilitated that. But, you know, if it's you're all of a sudden then you've got, I think, you know, his breeding right was 60 grand. You know, you've, you've got that and then you've got to find a couple of mares to send to him. So you are investing, you know, plenty and, you know, taking calculated risks. But um, like with that particular mare, obviously, when I bought her for 15,000, I didn't. I'm not going to pretend to say that I thought she was going to sell next year for 350 and fold a Hanseatic. But at the same time, I thought I'd bought her very well. You know, like as often can happen with online sales, people don't always, you know, present them with the best quality photographs or videos and, you know, you do your own research with regards to their progeny and what you think, what ability you think those progeny have. You know, I'll always look at if there's trial results and, you know, race replays, I'll look at all that. I take into account what they've made at yearlings sales, you know, because it gives an indication of the chance they'll have, you know, with better trainers and things. And you, you add it all up. And, and at the end of the day, um, you know, you hope then you at least, like basically the main aim is to actually cover your costs often, you know, and you hope there'll be a little left um, in the kitty at the end of it all. Kristen Buchanan's high boiled down to a big moment in the Sydney spring. Winning the four pillars with Oakfield Arrow. It was something that we targeted from the year before when the race, you know, first first was first thought up. Um, and uh, was very frustrating because I couldn't get a runner in the race uh, because of the, the the bidding system with the slot holders and things like that. We tried really hard, but and she was one of the horses that I was desperate to get into it because I thought it was you know tailor made for her, the right distance, and um, and the right you know kind of conditions for her. But uh, yeah, just absolutely delightful to um, to get to get the success for Bruce and uh, and with a beautiful little mare that is really as far as racehorse can be is quite push button without being you know brilliant so and when I say that I mean she's not you know she's not a group horse but in the right circumstances in that particular race place well with the right rider all of those things that that come together like a chess game and and when it works it feels so good because you know it's just it's very very satisfying you know, and then there's the prize money and, and all the media attention and everything with it as well, of course. But for me, it's that getting your tactics right, really targeting something and, and nailing it that, that, you know, that really gives me a buzz. That, that vindication of a, of a plan coming off. As, as you said, there's, there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with it. And you've won black type races before. Oh, yeah. So, you, you know, yeah. you're not unfamiliar with, with big races. But the stage that the four pillars is on and, and and the exposure that goes with it. How important to, is that to a trainer at your level? Oh, look, I think the the publicity and the recognition that you get for it um, is, is enormous. It opens up doors. People look at your stable in a different way and you get, again, from that, you get a snowballing effect of, you know, some better opportunities um, and, and, you know, you're in the spotlight and your horse is 
performing well and then people think oh I might send you know that's the midway queen I might send her uh, that horse that's only a midweek horse <laughs> um, seriously though you know that's been a great little uh, that's been a, a great little tagline uh, for us um, or for me I suppose but you know those those races where those midweek horses that might be in a bigger stable but we could perhaps be placed with us and targeted at those races and, and do very well and, and win Saturday prize money and maybe even a four pillars. You know, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for me. Byron Rogers looks back with immense respect on something that will hopefully safeguard the future of the sport. The effort, the, the, well, it's, things come into fruition in terms of the effort that's been made here in North America on um, racetracks, racehorse soundness and keeping horses sound and the fracture rates. I mean, every year they do, they have a massive database, um, an injury database, which, you know, all the, the, the racetracks that are the high end racetracks have to sort of submit all of the time that any time that a horse has a fracture of any description, um, and the outcome of that fracture, um, into a database. And that's getting analysed every year, and so that gives people the ability, you know, racetrack owners and 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 uh, even the guys preparing the racetracks to evaluate how they can, what's causing any any sort of increase in fracture rates and that sort of stuff. And so it's been a multi-year, like it's been going for a decade now. But certainly in this year, there was a really big and impressive outcomes with with um, you know the fracture rates going down dramatically and they have been going down for a number of years but this year in particular is very good and i think that's been the byproduct of um, a lot of people that are that are putting the horse first and they've been really sort of trying to uh, you know make sure that that they're protecting the horse when they go out onto the racetrack you've seen in america i mean steroids was outlawed in 20 i think 2009 2008 2009 after big brown um, mm. You know, they clamped down on corticosteroids um, starting in sort of 2015, 2016. Um, and obviously the stacking of, of drugs like uh, non-steroidals like butanamine, um, dexamethasone, those sorts of things. Trainers used to be able to stack all that sort of stuff together and, and use it on race day. Um, that sort of, you know, come, you know, come down and, and, they've, and as a result, you know, you're seeing horses um, being given time and then at a given time, they're not sort of getting um, crunched down on as much as they used to and, and you're seeing the fracture rates going down. So, you know, in terms of, um, you know, looking after the horse and, and obviously that's one of the, you know, I think there's sort of four aspects to this whole industry is to, you know, look after your horse, look after your owners, look after your punters and look, look after your fans. And the rest of it looks after itself. Um, but looking after the first thing is the horse to make sure that, you know, because they are a, a majestic beast that we've been entrusted with. And, and uh, so I do think my high for 2022 would be the uh, ongoing commitment and the outcomes that are coming out of North America in terms of um, racetrack soundness and, and keeping keeping horses on the racetrack and and lessening the injury, the catastrophic injuries that, that occur from time to time. I hate this word, Byron, uh, but I think it's good shorthand for the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, Optics-wise, uh, is, is the message getting out that this good work is going on to the wider public, do you think? Yeah, I think it is um, in terms of like, obviously every year they do the Jockey Club round, round table in, in, uh, at Saratoga every August and they give some of the data on, on what's going out there. I think it's, it is hard ultimately to get, um, you know, 
the dissemination of this sort of outcome, these sorts of things out there um, to the wider public. Um, you, you know, and, and we are, you know, as I say, in an industry where, where um, you, you've got an edge of the population of people who are totally anti-racing and want to see the whole thing, um, you know, be given up. And we, and we ran into a few things there in, in, in America in particular with uh, out there in, uh, in Santa Anita, out in California, um, where you even had the uh, state senator, um, Senator Feinstein, come in and, and ask the industry some real questions after there was a rash of breakdowns at, at Santa Anita um, two years ago. And I think that's where the response has been. Like if you look at look at how the industry has really sort of tried to uh, tried to get around and 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 you know mitigate those sorts of problems. But uh, you're you're right. I mean, we do have a, a situation where um, we have to be very responsible to and responsive to to um, um, you know the horse and 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 fracture rates and and try to. Uh, um, try to mi minimise those, but getting that information out on the effort that's being made um, outside of uh, the mainstream, when I say outside of like the mainstream thoroughbred industry media, like so the Blood Horse or the Thoroughbred Times or stuff like that, they publish it, mm. but getting it into say the LA Times or something like that is is another thing altogether. And I think that's possibly we could do a better job of that in terms of trying to uh, make sure the wider public are, are aware of how much effort that's being made. As David Clayton Thomas of Blood, Sweat and Tears once sang, what goes up must come down. Fanula's low for 2022 was the toughest of breaks. Um, I think definitely breaking my leg in the middle of October ranks up there among the lows. Um, yeah, no, it's put me out of action for quite a while, which has been difficult. Um, so I'm looking forward to 2022 now being out of the way and on to 2023. You mentioned last in last week's episode when we had you on that uh, you were really looking forward to, as you are now on the mend, getting back to actually spending more time with your animals and taking care of your, your horses. How much of a toll did that part take on you when you were out of action, not being able to get out and, and do the horsey stuff? Uh, very difficult, like even obviously like I was in hospital initially for two weeks and just from trying to even organize that side of things you know it's like it was breeding season so some of my mares were um I had one down at Twin Hills at the time and another or I think at Coolmore but you know the rest of them I basically rent land in various plains and I have you know most of my mares and yearlings there so you know all of a sudden I'm you know on in an ambulance on the way to hospital and you know I must give a shout out to my friend Norelle because like she was a god save she didn't hesitate in offering to, to, to look after those horses you know which you know it's very consigned consuming for her because she has her own job and her own horses at home and then she was having to drive out to mine twice a day looking after them but um and then it added a financial element for the ones I had had away at studs because you know you end up leaving them there longer and yeah and your, your bills are adding up that you don't necessarily have budgeted for um so yeah like all in all it was um it was hard from that point of view and just yeah it was hard from like as you say i'm used to going out like every morning before heading to coolmore i go, go and do my horses and every evening the same thing and you know be handling my foals and yearlings and that kind of thing so to be away from that all that for an extended length of time um it was frustrating um 
And yeah, I suppose a little bit testing even mentally. You uh, you don't realise how much how much you miss them until you're away from them too, I suppose. Yeah, my low would be um, the death of the Queen. Um, and I look, I'm 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 not a monarchist, so I'm not not going to be sort of uh, you know possibly not the right person to be talking about this. But I do think that the influence of her as a person who loved horse racing and who really um, enjoyed going to, especially Royal Ascot, going to Royal Ascot, but you know enjoyed all the horses um, over the you know however long her reign was, a massive, massive period of time. Mm. She's been an outstandingly positive influence, even if even if it's just in her presence was a positive influence um, for the racing industry in Europe in particular and in, in England. Um, but I think that, that that would be the low of the year, would be losing her. I don't think that the incoming King Charles has the same affection or, or and, and the same... Uh, uh, joy uh, as as she did in racing in, in racing horses, um, and so I don't know if that sort of and I so I don't know how that sort of tie between you know racing and and uh, the monarchy is going to go forward. Um, so I do think that's a big loss and a big low for the year. I think that 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 you know obviously that people have different reasons for for having an affection for the um, the queen. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm not a not a monarchist, but, but but I can understand that her influence on on uh, in terms of her love for horse racing had a had a uh, a magnitude effect in 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 helping uh, uh, keeping racing in the forefront in many ways. So um, that would be my low for the year is uh, losing her as a uh, uh, as an individual, but also losing her in terms of her influence on on horse racing. In, in Europe, um, in England, and but worldwide. My low for 2022 has been our terrible tracks that we've had to put up with through the year. Uh, unfortunately, with this uh, La Nina phenomenon uh, that's hit uh, Australia and the eastern states in particular, it's just been terribly disappointing. Um, we, you know, we've seen so many of our good race meetings raced on um, heavy tens and just quagmires and it just it puts a big shadow I think on some of the results that you know were achieved by two-year-olds and three-year-olds um, on these really very heavy and unfair tracks which just didn't suit many of the participants um, obviously um, for the people who won the races good luck to them and we would love to have been in their position. But I think as a, as a fan of the sport, it's just been so disappointing that it's gone for such a long time. Like sometimes over the years we've had a meeting that was affected or a particular race that was affected and it's always unfortunate. But where this year it was like every week, it just seemed the whole Sydney autumn seemed to be uh, almost wiped out with these very heavy tracks. And it's very unfortunate when you see how much work is going on behind the scenes with training these horses, getting them ready, and, and them having this little window of opportunity to win at the highest level, and then you get tracks like that which are just not fair. Um, nobody's fault. No one, you know, I think that they did an amazing job to get through it as, as best they could. We didn't lose that many meetings. But just as a fan of the sport, I thought it was a, a real downer and um, I think it, it puts a big asterisk on all of the results from um, that 
those tracks which were you know badly affected yeah yeah and you know you've got the numb nuts out there that are you know say oh it's always wet in sydney autumn and and that kind of thing wrong wrong it you know not for the sustained period that it was this year uh yeah. and you had horses able to string together exceptional campaigns that maybe got an uplift as a result and and as you correctly identified many horses that we didn't see their true worth the interesting thing long term will be at yearling sales in four years time whether buyers are able to pass that data and go oh well, this is out of a black type winning mare but that was that black type was gained in that autumn how accurate is it or vice versa maybe there's a few bargains to be had in four years time if you can recall the product that wasn't able to perform on the wet but subsequently showed ability on a on a firmer surface producing something that might go for unders because a catalogue page unfortunately doesn't carry information of a meteorological nature well i think that some of these organizations are like uh you know I know Henry Field and some of these guys that have got these stallion syndicates and um, when they're looking at different stallions, they do quite a lot of analysis on form. So they mm. they drill down on um, ratings and things that's a big part of their selection criteria. But it, it's hard when it's um, when you've just had this elongated period of, of bad tracks. So you haven't really been able to see these horses racing on fair tracks very often at all um so it, it does make that a lot more challenging i think uh it's just disappointing because um we, we were sort of victims of it ourselves with some horses that just didn't go on such affected going and um yeah you have such high hopes and expectations going into these races and all you want is for things to be fair and if you get beaten well by a better horse that's fine but when when it's tracks like that you're always wondering what what it could be so yeah, look, hopefully, I don't know what, I'm not a meteorologist, I don't know what the forecast is for next year, whether it's it's still going to hang around this thing, but, God, I can't wait for it to just go. I've, I've, I've had a gutful of it. Oh, just the weather in general. Um, we've had, <laughs> just in general, you know, it's gone from being bottomless tens where your horses struggle to, to get through it to all of a sudden good threes and good twos where your horses are, well, not good twos, but good threes that should be called twos sometimes where they're mm. jarring up and, and, and don't want to run on it after they've, you know, finally gotten used to wet tracks. It's just been hideously hard for everybody, you know, and, but that's Australia, that's racing and you have to roll with the punches and you have to be good at rolling with the punches, I guess. But that's my biggest, my, my, my biggest gripe for 2022 was just dealing with, changing weather conditions has uh, been tough yeah it's interesting because suman uh, called out the wet tracks but you're saying that both extremes can be painful when you were starting out as a trainer did you realize just how much you would have oh. to focus on what the weather gods were doing i must admit if i realized what i know now before i started training i probably would never have started thank goodness i didn't but um <laughs> like there's <laughs> There's so many elements to getting it right in racing, um, you know, tracks, weather, barriers, jockeys, or oh, programming. Um, there's so, so many spokes in the wheel and that's not even taking into consideration the quality of horse that you get and, and all the rest of that. Um, so yes, it's, uh, 
it's very challenging, but I like a barrier six and I like a soft six. Is that too much to ask for? <laughs> that's your that's your wish. That's your new re- <laughs> New Year's right. resolution. Absolutely, that's more my, number sixes. That's on, that's on my my favorite number. That's on my Santa's wish list. Is more number sixes. Thank you very much. Now for something a little different. We tell a few tales on a horse walks into a bar, so I asked the team to tell me a lesser known yarn that might add a little colour to this industry of ours. They didn't disappoint. First, Suman shares a conspiracy that no humans were in on. Years ago when I worked for Sharif, um, we had a, you know, he had probably 60, 70 broodmares and we had the majority of them housed at a particular farm, which I won't name. Um, and what happened was we had a bunch of foalings that year and you know there were, some of them were nice some of them were average some of them bad um and one of the mares that we had she was um quite well bred had a foal it was an average foal and so we sort of got the report back yeah she's had a foal it's probably like a, a b minus you know it's just just a foal and so we were like you know not that enthused by the whole thing and some time's passed, like several months have passed, and she's just developing, and she's just one of the, the group, and there's no excitement. And then they did like the the testing of these horses, like they do rent the DNA just to identification and stuff. And there was a problem, and it didn't match the horse. So the the, the, the DNA test of this particular foal didn't match the mother. And so they did some investigations, and on the day that she was foaled. There was two mares um, in the in the foaling paddock, and they both foaled, and they switched foals. So um, <laughs> we had the wrong we had the wrong foal. So uh, I think ours was by Bellotto, and the other was an honours list, which honours list of failure. But um, so ours was supposed to be the honours list, and it turned out to be a Bellotto. Um, anyway, so they've done this, and they said, "Look, there's a mix up. You." Um, this isn't your foal. And there's a guy in South Australia who's got your foal. Turns out the other foal was an absolute belter, which was our original foal. It was a cracker. It was probably one of the best foals that we'd had that season. And we'd had this dumpy average thing. And so we had to switch foals. We had to give ours back to him. And poor old mate has just thought he's got the best Bellotto foal on, on his farm and the, probably the best foal he's bred and he's had to hand that over and get this um, dumpy thing and then we've got his foal so um, that was that was pretty freaky and um, a pretty you know and fa- fortunately for us we ended up on the right end of that but I always felt sorry for that guy because um, yeah when he when he would have received um, the horse I, I don't think he would have been too thrilled. <laughs> I reckon he knew. I reckon he knew when his Bellotto uh, foal wasn't chewing the fence and standing on its hind legs and trying to savage everything in sight uh, <laughs> before the DNA came in. That's amazing. So the mares pulled a Swifty. Yeah, so um, apparently this happens. Um, you know, when they're in the paddocks, they can do that and they'll just they'll switch foals. Um, it's not like something that happens a lot, but it, it, it can happen and it did in our instance. And um, yeah, she must have just thought, um, I don't really like this one. I'll just have that. And they've, they've uh, done that switch. But it's just, again, um, I was thinking like, it's just another way to get beaten in, in this industry. Um, so 
I, I can't think of things that'd be much worse than having something for six months and then having to hand it over. Along with a group of racing figures, Byron Rogers somehow managed to turn 200,000 into eight figures. Almost. I'll tell you the story. It involves uh, John O'Shea, Jace Abrahams, and a guy called uh, Trevor Stuckey, who was uh, the, the racing to win and, and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, we're at, uh, this is very early doors when we were, um, we were, I was looking at horses with John and we we're at the Easter Yearling Sales and John had told us, he said, I've got, he'd only just really started training and he said, oh, I've got a, um, got a new client, got a bit of money to spend and uh, let's do the Easter Sales. And so we used to, as I say, we used to go around independently, look at all the horses and um, we get do that and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, we all come up with our own list and, and uh, James Whitfield, who's a very good vet, he was also on the, on the team. Anyway, we get get around and we look at them all and um, we all settle on this colt. We said, oh, there's a really nice colt here, grey horse over at Boeing Costa Lago over at Boscoville. And uh, John, yeah, you get those things where you're sort of sitting down and there's you sort of think to yourself, oh, you know, I think it's worth 50 grand, 80 grand, 100 grand. And all of a sudden, by the time you all got together, you've got it making 150 to 200,000. By the time you think, oh, we've really got to, you know, have to spend and blah, blah, blah. So I guess Trevor Stuckey out, it's a night session. And uh, they're bidding a, he's got Trevor there beside us and the four of us are there and we're all sort of standing there bidding away. Actually, funnily enough, Richard Haynes was the bid spot of all things, uh, Hainsey. And uh, this colt comes through the ring and um, anyway, so it starts off at like, you know, 20, 20, 30 grand, blah, blah, blah. And we go and, uh, and it starts sort of like edging off at about 35 grand. I said, John, you bid have a bid. John puts in one bid, 40 grand. There's silence afterwards. Knocks down the knocks down the hammer, bang, forty grand. And John just turns to us and goes, "We've missed something. Something's wrong with this horse." And start, you know, in that usual John O'Shea fashion, you can get a little bit hyper and a little bit excited about things. And he's like, "You've missed something." And and James Whiffle there said, "I didn't miss anything. I didn't miss anything." Well, and and, and uh, John was a bit sort of like apprehensive about the whole thing because we told Trevor it was going to bring one fifty, hundred fifty thousand, and uh, the. The girl comes over with a slip, and I said to and I said to uh, said to John, if he doesn't buy it, I'll buy it. And I put my hand out to grab the slip, and Trevor jumped in and said, no, 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 deal's a deal. I, I'll, I'll, you know, so he buys the Colt. Um, that was racing to win. So he went from forty grand. He made like three point five million on the track. Um, that's how close I was to a, a, a horse that made three point five million. But it gets better. So. From the in the next sort of four or five years, as racing the wind goes round, wins these multiple group ones and all sorts sort of stuff like that. John O'Shea and Jace are just merciless to me. They're just like, "Oh, buy it. you were that close, Byron. You were that close to having this, you know, three million dollar earner." And that, I'm mean, I'm just copying it every every time that horse wins a good race. So I think to myself, well, uh, I'll uh, we. At that stage, then I was working up here in America, but I used to come back for the sales, and I was back at the Magic Millions and. There's this horse, this colt there, and Jace is like Jace Abrahams, is, who's doing champion thoroughbreds at the time, is is like, oh, there's a really nice colt here, and I was like, yeah, he said, go over and look at him. He's over there at, at McTalty's, Mc, uh, and I said, go over there, and he's just glorious to look at this horse. And I said, oh, he said again, again, same thing happens. We sit down at the thing there, and John's like, what do you think you'll bring this, that, and the other? And I'm like, you know, we get to the situation where we think, oh, I might bring three or four hundred thousand. So. 
Jace is there, and you know, Jace says, oh, well, if he only brings like 150 or something like that, I'll buy him. And, and John's like, no, nah, no, nah, he brings more than that. Don't worry about it, you know? So we get there to the ring, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh, no, this is this all is going to break. We're all thinking it's going to make a fortune. Anyway, the bidding starts, blah, blah, blah. It gets to 130, 140. You're sort of starting to slow down, and I'm like, okay. John bids 150. Someone else bids 155. He bids 160, and the horse gets knocked down. Bang, knocked down to him. Well, 18 months later... John O'Shea is not training shooting to win when he wins the uh, Caulfield Guineas. Jace Abrahams does not own shooting to win at 160 grand when he should have owned because Trevor Stuckey was there and and, and John had said, no, no, to Trevor, this will bring two or 300,000. And then they sell the horse for $10 million to Darley. So we end up where we were like, Two horses that was 160 grand and 40 grand have cost us the better part of 14 million. As for Fanula and Kristen, just don't go riding in the Northern Hemisphere. During my time in Ireland, I worked for a, a small national hunt yard. Uh, the trainer's name was Mickey Maguire, and he was involved in all sorts of things, I think, but um, a, a very much a character. And... Uh, he, he, and a, and a, you know, permanent part-time alcoholic, I'm pretty sure, but he, he had a, he had a wooden leg, uh, like from the knee down and uh, due to a, uh, some accident with machinery while he'd been drinking too much. And, um, anyway, cut a long story short, this man could ride anything. I would, I went over there breaking in horses and, um, I had one horse that you know, could just ditch me no matter what I did. I couldn't ride her. And this guy, he jumped on with his wooden leg and got her going, you know, within a, within a matter of minutes. He was just amazing um, as a horseman, but crazy. And uh, back to my story, the, the, most, the most random thing, we were out in a national, on a hunt. Uh, we used to train all these national hunt horses out in, in actual hunts and um, it was terrific fun. But he had this big horse, James, who was 17 hands high and, not a big fan of jumping, but Mickey was doing his best to get him to come around. Anyway, we were approaching this huge ditch and James flew out over it and then disappeared from sight. And I could hear, we could hear Mickey, but we couldn't, we couldn't see him. So there's a lot of swearing going on and uh, some scrambling at the bottom of this ditch. Anyway, a couple of moments later, James is plunging up the far side and, and Mickey's uh, wooden leg that he used to Velcro in into the stirrup iron was was still attached, still attached, and his horse clambers out the other side of the ditch, and and Mickey's wooden leg. None of the, no one else on the hunt knew that he had this, and uh, all of a sudden his leg goes pop and flies out across the paddock, and uh, anyway he got loose. He was fine, but um, he's swearing and carrying on, and and then hopping across this massive paddock trying to catch his his thoroughbred at full full pelt across there. It's 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 still etched in my mind, and it was just so funny, but. Could have been, could have been tragic, but it was, uh, yeah, just a very random thing. I better be careful here what I say. Um, no, probably one of the more humorous things I remember was working when I was at uh, Francois Drian's Troque Stud, which was, um, it was a few miles from the Curra, and uh, I used to prep yearlings for him, but we always had a few um, point-to-pointers in work, and of an afternoon, the two of us would... Um, ride out a couple of point pointers and we'd have to hack down the road a few miles and we weren't we didn't have permit permission to you know ride on any of the gallops there so we used to sort of go around a bit of the periphery of the curra which 
is near a army training base and um, I remember one of the days I said, I said, Francis, well, like, what's with all these white flags? And he said, oh, that's just um, shooting practice. And I and you know, next minute you're seeing signs going, you know, keep out um, shooting in progress or whatever else. And uh, he was like, oh, don't worry, no, it's fine. Anyway, we're cantering along and uh, quite a bit of, um, of guns being fired <laughs> in the background. And uh, I was kind of looking at him and anyway, thought no more of it. And uh, I remember that evening I was telling my brother-in-law was in the Irish Air Corps and then I was relaying the story to him and he said, um, he's like, Fadula, he's like, they practice with live, with live guns. <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, you're crazy. But uh, yeah, Francois had me convinced that, you know, that it was only, um, it wasn't live, um, live fire that they were practicing with. But yeah, and it was regularly enough recurrence. We'd be working these horses as the army would be practicing there uh, down at their shooting range. But um it was a bit of fun. A bit of fun? <laughs> <laughs> no one died. Finally, I asked the team for their bold predictions for 2023. They're supposed to be experts, after all. I don't know how bold it is, but I think certainly um, there's a, a few proven stallions that I think are really going to um, step up their game in the coming months with, with the horses they have coming through. And I think... Those are Spirit of Boom, Piero and Star Turn. I think um, they're all going to have a big year ahead, is my prediction. You know, we're, we're starting to see in Australia this um, thinning out of that, the Danehill effect, I call it. Um, we, we just had such a strong influence on, on, on all of our pedigrees up close of, of Danehill. And, I, and I, I think that it really had a detrimental effect in the last probably half a dozen years where it became very difficult to mate mares and we, we found that when you know it was highly concentrated it didn't work very well but just looking at um, some recent results this year and and we're starting to see that you know this duplication of Danehill and where it's a where it's occurring further back in the pedigree it's it's probably not been um, you know as detrimental to us um, I think that, and, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing, you know, because we'll start to see some stallions emerge and some different sire lines to, you know, to, um, start to do well, which I think is going to be a positive for us. Uh, but it's, I've been watching it closely because when we used to see, um, you know, Dane Hill, especially male, male, um, and three by three in particular, you just walk away, you know, the stats were so poor on it. But I, I think now it's just really starting to drift back and, um, we can get on with it again, <laughs> and um, and I think that's going to be a positive thing for um, the industry. It's definitely a trend that's that's occurring. Um, that um, that's the, that seems to be the way it's going. I'm going to go out. I might be a little bit premature here, but um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the whip, losing the whip in racing, I think it's really on the cards, and I think it's coming sooner rather than later. 2023 might be a little bit premature, but I think in the long run, it'll be gone. Wowee. Can I be honest? I think of everybody on the show, that's the boldest of the <laughs> the predictions. Uh, and obviously we're not going to, we're not going to call you up on this at the end of, end of 2023, if it hasn't happened. Are you talking nationally or like one state will go and then the dominoes will fall? What do you think? Well, 
I think that the push for it is, you know, external to racing, really, and then we're reacting to those pressures. Um, and I won't weigh into which way I think it should go, but uh, I think the pressure is there on a national scale, and I think that the industry will have to respond on a national scale. No point having That's one state really versus cool. another. I think that this is not an industry issue. This is a, an external, you know, um, welfare issue. And I think we're going to have to face it sooner rather than later. I think my bold prediction is, I don't know, there's going to be a point in time, I think it'll be this year coming, is that I think, obviously, I think there's going to be a recession uh, worldwide. And I think that's going to expose, um, uh, you know, expose, expose the, the rocks in a, uh, in a, in a stormy weather um, in the, by, the, by the shore. And that's going to be our... I don't know if this this we can keep going in Australia with the prize money increases and the and the amount of money that's being um, turned back in terms of prize money in through the industry. I think that's look that's been one thing over the last decade, fifteen years in in Australian racing that they've got right is is maximising return to owners and and making sure racetracks um, and racing administration doesn't sop up a lot of the a lot of the cash um, and and maximising racetrack returns. But that comes on the back of the punter. Um, that comes on the back of um, the you know the the average person being happy with um, you know it's a considerable rake in terms of the percentage that, that they take out um, for um, each bet. And um, I just don't know how long um, how, for how much longer they're going to be being able to sustain um, the the punters are going to want to keep going and keep keep punching money through. Uh, Australia has a, an amazing appetite for, for punt, uh, gambling. Um, a part of it looks at these, um, you know, how these uh, in New South Wales alone, if they pass the um, legislation for uh, uh, the poker machines and making making them cashless poker machines and, and, and how that's going to have an effect, I think there'll be a knock-on effect in, in horse racing. I think um, there's going to be uh, some sort of contraction, I'd say, between... You know, in the next 12 months of um, how much money is going through the game and how much money they can then turn around and punch out in prize money. And that uh, um, at some stage, the, uh, the merry-go-round is going to stop and I think it's going to uh, stop in the next 12 months or at least decline. I, I don't know, it won't stop, but at least at least to have a, 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 um, a negative effect and people will start to sort of see that in terms of what they're putting out in prize money and, um, and that'll filter through to bloodstock sales. Closing time, that's it for episode 8 and for 2022. A huge thanks to Kristen, Fanula, Suman and Byron for their contributions this year, and to you for coming along for the ride. We'll see you in the new year, and we'll be kicking off with a special deep dive into one of the great horse racing movies, alongside Dan Delgado. Don't miss that one, but for now, I've been Gus Rowland, and this horse has walked. (laughs) 